please be aware that this is a recording of a writing festival. As such, there are some adult concepts, probably a bit of swearing, and sometimes there might even be some triggering elements. So do be aware of that. If anything does make you feel uncomfortable, please stop listening at any point. Also, we do recommend you pop on some headphones. That way, the only person who can get offended is you. Welcome back to the Rights for Festivals podcast, where we're getting all lit up with the Wollongong Writers Festival. If you'd like to know more about Wollongong Writers Festival, go to www.wollongongwritersfestival.com or you can follow them on Twitter and Facebook. This session is Dicey Topics Live with Benjamin Law, Clementine Ford, Stephanie Wood and Jess Hill. Hello. G'day, everyone. Welcome to the Wollongong Writers' Festival. My name is Benjamin Law. I'm so pleased that you're all here with us and so pleased, of course, that you're joining us here on Aboriginal land. Um, First Nations people like the Wadi Wadi of the Dharawal Nation have been telling stories and sharing knowledge here for tens of thousands of years, at least 65,000 years, the longest continuing human civilization the planet has ever seen. And we are very, very grateful to elders past and present that we can continue telling stories and sharing knowledge here on what is and what will always be Aboriginal land. So if you read Good Weekend uh, in the Saturday edition of the Sydney Morning Herald or Age every weekend, you may have noticed that on the back page I interview public people about private topics because I'm a disgusting busybody. Um, But the topics that I'm most interested in are the ones that we grew up being told not to discuss at the dinner table. These are death, sex, money, religion, politics, and our bodies. And in my family, we love talking about all of these things, especially bodily functions. You know, like any family that doesn't talk about poo at the dinner table, I'm like, what is going on there? And so, of course, I was going to take this into a professional environment. Please welcome Clementine Ford, everyone. She's the best-selling author of The Feminist Manifesto, Fight Like a Girl, and Boys Will Be Boys, a book about toxic masculinity and misogyny. Next to Clementine, we have a multi-award-winning investigative journalist who has been writing about forms of domestic abuse since 2014. Prior to this, she was a producer for ABC Radio, a Middle East correspondent for the Global Mail, and an investigative journalist for ABC RN's Background Briefing. Her first book, See What You Made Me Do, is about the phenomenon of domestic abuse in Australia. Please welcome Jess Hill, everyone. And last but not least, the author of Fake, a startling true story of love in a world of liars, cheats, narcissists, fantasists and phonies. No, she is not writing about federal parliament. She's writing about men in general. She's also an award-winning journalist and a former Good Weekend magazine writer. And she's known for her compelling, deeply human and humane stories. Can I just interrupt? I ha- we have to change that line mm-hmm. because I wrote that bio probably six years ago when someone needed it and when the Wollongong Writers Festival asked me to give a bio. Yeah. It's already been read twice, and I'm really should, embarrassed. Should we? I'm okay. having shame. What, okay, <laughs> Stephanie, what are we missing? What we? Sh- what should we include? Um, I really like gardening and uh-huh. swimming in the ocean. Oh, fantastic! How about that? And I'm hoping we, I get out of here soon enough to get a swim in on the I way like back. Every, Will you come for a swim with me? I feel like every bio should be framed as kind of a Tinder bio yeah, from now yeah, on. Yeah. I, I'm really into it. <laughs> but I. 
Thank you, Stephanie. I, I like that write. augmented yeah. bio. It's said once. I appreciate it. We're friends. We can do this. <laughs> Everyone, please welcome the great Stephanie Wood. Okay, so. Shit, where did I put the dice? Um, <laughs> it's, actually, it's actually a real dice that we use. Oh, here it is. Here it is. It's actually a real dice that we use at Good Weekend. And I, I've actually lost. Um, count of the number of people who shriek in horror um, when I bring it out. Michelle Bridges shrieked in horror when I brought out the dice, and she's just like, please don't roll politics. And of course she gets politics. So, um, so just to recap, uh, the six topics are death, sex, money, religion, politics, and your body, and each of the numbers correspond with one. I'm going to get each of our panellists to roll the dice... And whatever topic we land on, we're going to explore with all of our panellists. So every panellist will get a roll of the dice. Also, by the way, the Macquarie Dictionary does nowadays say that dice can be a singular die. So for all of you pedants who keep writing in to Good Weekend, doing my frickin' head in, saying it should be die topics that's a stupid title. We're not going to call it die topics It's a frickin' dice. Okay, so Clem, would you like to roll first? One. One is death. Oh, my favourite topic. Okay. Um, you, you actually encountered death quite young, in a way. Yes, on a road one night. Yes. <laughs> no, I, um, I've, my mum died when I was 25, mm-hmm. and up until that point, no one I knew had died yeah. ever. And then, like, the worst person I could think of to die died. Mm. Um, so she was... Diagnosed with cancer um, in like October or I don't know the end of end of two thousand and six, um, she'd gotten jaundice and gone to the hospital and they thought you know that she might have eaten some bad oysters mm. and um, we, we're not the kind of family that sits around and eats oysters all the time. By the way, it wasn't like a luxurious decadent thing. It was after it was before Christmas or something. You're allowed like that. to eat oysters if you eat. <laughs> I enjoyed them too. Um, Anyway, so she came over all yellow and jaundiced and went to the hospital and then they did a scan and they found Mm. a shadow on her liver. And they thought, well, it doesn't look like it's very big, so we're going to do surgery and we'll be able to go in and get it out. And she went into surgery on her, I think it was 2006, 26th anniversary with my dad. She went into surgery Mm. and he called me that night and um, I'd I'd been expecting the surgery to go for a lot longer than when he called and he called me and he was, I've never heard, I had never heard my father in that level of distress before in my life and he was just a ruined shell of a man crying and sobbing down the phone and he said it's, too much there's nothing they can do and the story was basically that they kind of opened her up and it had just spread so far right you couldn't even say whether or not it had started I think in her bile duct which is where they thought it was because it was just everywhere Mm. um and so they sewed her up and then they said you know you probably have around a year I think they they said or something like that um and we kind of you know did everything that you try and do to save a person's life who's dying yeah. when you love them. And, you know, we juiced and we... You know, she, there was no point in her doing chemo. There was nothing that could be done. But, we, you know, we, I ordered some, like, crazy tea from Canada that promised to purge her of, you know, all of these tumours. And, I mean, that's why it's so infuriating when you see charlatans selling shit on the internet because, of course, you're going to buy it. 
course I'm going to go and buy anything I can to try and save the life of my mum. Um, but in the end, it, you know, didn't work. What, what took you by surprise when it came to experiencing grief? Because it sounds like a big loss and your first kind of major significant loss and like a loss that was so close to you. Mm. What, what, um... Well, I remember just feeling really... Firstly, it is true what they say that, you know, you can't predict how grief is going to come out in you, you know. And I'm sure that there are many people in here who've lost, lost someone or multiple people close to them. But I had a, had a very clear idea of what grief would feel like and when it happened I just had to feel it and express it in whatever way it came and one of those ways was the night before my mum's funeral I went to the pub and was the life of the party and I just kind of gave myself permission at this I never sort of berated myself for feeling the wrong way because I just thought I just have to feel the way that I feel and you know went to the funeral the next day and um I remember afterwards going back to my parents' house and lying on my mother's side of the bed and just sobbing into her pillow and I could still smell her Mm. in the bed and just sobbing and then starting to feel like I was on the edge of a panic attack because I was suddenly... And I felt this sort of similar sense of panic after our friend Stella died because I couldn't... I I reverted back to this very childlike state of being where I couldn't understand where she'd gone. And I just kept thinking, I felt this panic that I would never be able to speak to her for the rest of my life, but I would also never be able to see her or touch her. And I'd seen her in the, um, in the funeral home before she was cremated. I'd sort of walked into the, the viewing room and, and suddenly been really quite shocked by the sight of her dead body and went and kind of poked it and it was cold and hard. And it, it was so clear that she wasn't there. Mm. Um, and so I, I sort of... I went through that like intense grief in that way and then for a long time kept feeling it kind of like wash over me in these horrible waves. But what I found is it's been 12 or 13 years now since she died, 12 years. And what I found now that is even though that grief never goes away and it and it's sort of always becomes it becomes a part of you and mm. a, like a a person almost that you have to kind of make peace with or make friends with, but what I feel now is I still have those moments where I'll think to myself, I must call mum and tell mm. her about that. Or, you know, now that I've got a child, you know, there's all these things that you want to tell your parents. Um, and that used to make me really sad because you would then kind of come back into this moment where you realise that they were gone. But now what I feel in those moments is really grateful mm-hmm. because for this, just the split, the splittest of split seconds in your mind and in your heart, they're alive again. Mm. And even though it is only a very, very split second, actually in the moment it feels like time has kind of gone like that. Yeah. One of the things that people struggle with is when people in their lives are experiencing grief. They're not sure whether they're going to say the right thing or do the right thing. People can become awkward. People can become absent. And I'm wondering when you were going through this period, what did people do around you that actually did help? That did make a difference. Um, I remember my friends bringing me, just before my mum died, my friends invited me to dinner at um, one of their houses one night and I was kind of just talking about normal things. I I didn't really want to talk about the impending death of my mother. But they, to their credit, were saying, you know, well, look, we're worried about you. You're not talking about this at all. We want you to know that we're here for you. And I appreciate where they were coming from, but actually I didn't want that. I just wanted people to be normal. 
And I think that a lot of people who are going through grief want to be given permission to talk about it however much or, as, or however little as they would like. And certainly for me, I felt like if I had that permission, then it was easier for me to kind of deal with what was going on. And I think as well, speaking to other friends who had lost a parent or, or, or had lost someone was a way of having, a way of exploring that grief with someone who understood it. it it's really hard to talk to someone who doesn't understand grief in that way. Mm. It's hard to talk to them and explain to them what you're feeling. And, and also, you don't want to feel sad all the time. Yeah. Thank you so much for being so candid and sharing with okay. us. Thanks for asking. Um, Jess, uh, you were working in the Middle East for um, quite a period. Um, it is a dynamic region of the world, and you also were working as an investigative journalist. Did you have any near-death experiences? Um, Yes, uh, but it wouldn't. It wasn't in the way that you would expect, um, which is probably what you're alluding to, because you're quite cunning. Um, and, uh, <laughs> um, um, I uh, so I was in Yemen back when Yemen was Yemen and not just a bomb site as it sort of is now. And I um, I was flying back on my own um, on a flight back to Beirut where I was living. And I was seated by the window. We'd had an eight or nine hour layover in Dubai and I was really beyond tired. And so I was just leaning against the window sort of trying to get that weird flying sleep that you don't get. And, um, and suddenly I just felt as if a trapdoor had opened in my brain and all the language had just fallen into a basement. Mm. And... It was like in that moment, I was like clawing, 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 going like, where's, where's it all gone? But only I couldn't even use those words. I just felt myself clawing like an animal, but in my brain um, or in my mind or whatever it is that goes up in your head. Um, and as about like seconds later, the language returned and then I got like almost like, a, like inertia, like just sort of like stuck back in my chair and then started shaking. And I was having a seizure, which I didn't, I'd never had a seizure before, and I didn't know what it felt like, but shaking was a pretty clear indicator. And I started shaking so much that I was convinced that I was going to die in that moment. I was like, I couldn't breathe. I was trapped up against the wall. And there was a seat in between me and this other guy, and this guy was just on his iPad, completely oblivious to what was going on. Mm. And I just knew in my head, I was like, I could just feel that I was going down, I was going under, and that I needed someone to bring me back out. And somehow, I managed to sort of like put myself in, put my body back into it itself and launched myself across the seat onto his lap. And, uh, and suddenly he paid close attention to what was going on uh, and, um, and then I lost consciousness and when I came to I was sitting in a chair, a different chair, I think I was sitting in the middle, that, that man was now gone, I didn't, um, funny, didn't just sit around to like sort of make sure I was okay but anyway, um, so and I had no memory in that moment of what were had you, gone were on. Were still mid-air? No, uh, yeah, I was, yeah, definitely, yeah, we were still on the way to Beirut um, and so sitting in my chair and um, this woman in front of me was sort of like, so, are you going to Beirut to party? And I'm like, no, I actually live there. And she said, I'd like to give you my bracelet. I'm like, 
it's pretty weird. Um, and I'm like, why are you having such an instant close bond with me? And then someone from behind me was like, are you okay now? And I'm like, yeah. No idea I'd even been unconscious. Wow. So and I was just like, this is so bizarre. I don't even know what's going on. And then I got up to go to the bathroom and my legs just like fell out like my, yeah, that just rolled automatically, by the way, that doesn't count. <laughs> um, but, um, but my legs fell out from under me and I was like, I can't walk, this is odd. And then I, I sat so back can down. So ask, had no one realised that you'd had a seizure at this point? No, they just... no, they had, but they hadn't come around and seen me. Right. Maybe they didn't notice I was awake. I don't know what happened. I mean, they obviously had attended, but I looked at the seat next to me and suddenly I was like, there's a wet patch on that seat and that obviously mm. urinated while I was seizing and suddenly it all came back to me. Wow. Like a flood of memory and usually seizure, people who go through seizures don't remember what went on at all. It's just a black hole. But I remembered everything. So those of us who are listening to this story right now, there's a part of us that are going, could this happen to me? Yeah. So what was going on mm. and why ha- was it happening to you? So, well, so when I, when I landed in Beirut, um, <laughs> I was telling this to an Lebanese person the other day who understood exactly what had gone on. Um, I, the, one of the guys on the plane was like, I'll get you a wheelchair, right? It wheels me out. And I'm like, that's so nice. Thank you so much. And he's like, that'll be $10. Like, <laughs> fucking, fucking right, it won't. And I was like enraged. I'm like, there's no way I'm paying you $10. You're a freaking employee of the airline. And then he was like, okay, okay. And then I got into the cab and unbeknownst to me, he charged the cab $10. And I had to pay $10 on arriving at home. Um, so I got home and fortunately my apartment, um, which used to be owned by this American guy who was doing propaganda in Iraq and had done it up really nice because he made so much money. Um, we were right next door to the Red Cross. And so, uh, my partner who met me at the apartment, he, he got the guy from next door from the Red Cross to come look at me. Um, that guy was like, you know, you, you, you probably need to go to hospital pretty soon. But I was like, no, 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 I just need to sleep. I need to sleep. Anyway, these rolling seizures kept coming over me. I'm like, maybe not. Went to the hospital. They did a scan. And I actually, if I didn't have my partner, I wouldn't remember this stuff. I think I was actually dissociating. Like, Mm. I actually have no memory of this, weirdly, after remembering the seizure. And they said, there's something on your brain. And we're not sure what it is. We need to do another scan. And then, so they did another scan. They injected contrast into the brain to basically see what was happening with whatever the shadow was. And then they said, we're not going to have results for another... 24 hours or so so you'll have to stay here overnight and my partner and I just lay in the bed Mm. that night a single bed just totally up against each other and I remember always it gets me I remember seeing the sun rising through the window and I was like maybe like this is one of the last sunrises I'm gonna see wow because I had no idea if it was like grade four tumor you're Mm. out or or benign or we had no clue and my partner and I just held each other and just couldn't even pray because we're not even religious. But, um, but, <laughs> but just, just held each other in that unknowing and that feeling of being out of control, but not in total chaos, but just in this liminal space in between where you're like, I don't have, I don't have any say in this. This is going to happen to me. And so 
I mean, how did this resolve? What actually happened? And how do you well, reflect? Well, she died. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah I yeah, died. You died. You died. Then I came back to yeah, life. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're a modern Jesus, Jess Hill. Yeah. Um, Cryogenics. But, yeah. but, but how did, I mean, is this a health issue that's been resolved for you? And how, how do you reflect on what you experience now? Yeah. So um, it's unfortunately, see, that whole thing of dissociating. I was convinced that in my um, conversations with the uh, doctor who did the operation that they'd always just called it like a cyst. Apparently they had called it a tumour, but I didn't realise that until I talked to him on the way out of Beirut. And I was at Beirut Airport and I'd got the departure times entirely wrong, so we ended up having to bolt for the plane. But anyway... This was after the surgery. This is after the surgery, about a few weeks afterwards. And he said, so the tumour... And and that was the first time I'd actually heard the word tumour. And then my credit ran out of the phone. And I'm like, what? (sighs) Tumour? What? And... By the time I called back, which was about half an hour later getting someone else's phone, he was gone for the day. And then I was going to Cairo. And then, so anyway, so over time, thanks to biopsies and whatever, we've sort of figured out that it was, it's a grade 2.5. And grades, as anyone who's gone through cancer knows, are not exactly the be-all and end-all of whether it's terrible or not. Um, But it's it's a mid-zone between Mm. malignant and benign. And so nobody knows whether... My neurosurgeon, as all neurosurgeons are, was confident that he got it all out. But as all my, my neuro-oncologist, who's a bit more sceptical, is like, no one gets it all out. It's still, there are bits in there that can reanimate, like Terminator 2, just like, you know, come back. So they've said there's a 95% chance it will come back. Um, but how it will? Will mm. it make another couple of genetic mistakes? Will it be malignant if it comes back? Will it just be benign? Will we... Will we radiate? Will we? My, my neurosurgeon and my neuro-oncologist here in Australia, because I was operated on in Beirut, um, they've, like, we were considering radiation, like, this year. We were going to do maybe radiation and chemo as a preventative measure. And I was like, is it actually necessary? Like, right now, just written a book about domestic abuse and I'm finally at the other end. I really don't want to mm. do chemo right now. Mm. Like, I need a freaking break. Um, and they've just said, well, look, it's a roll the dice thing um, and we're just watching and waiting so I've actually got a scan that is overdue right now mm-hmm. um, and hopefully we have seen signs of growth but hopefully that's just going to be a slow grower and we can manage it yeah wow fingers Holy. crossed yeah. I mean thank you so much for sharing that with yeah. us that is such a I imagine stressful thing to live with but has it also changed I mean from that first sunrise mm. that where you thought maybe this is the last one I've seen till now has it completely changed your outlook on life? Yeah, not in ways that so in different ways. At first, when I came out of the surgery, and everyone who treated me there was so beautiful, down to the anaesthetist who put me under and showed me pictures of his kids as he was putting me under and was talking about love as he was sending me unconscious. I mean, it was a gorgeous experience in that way. Um, I actually felt quite transcendent which is also steroids and stuff like that. But, you know, like I felt like I was... I did feel like in a state of grace. I felt a type of um, gratitude for the experience. Um, I have to say the worst thing that happened in that whole time was that two weeks after I had the surgery and the day I was going to have my staples out, Mm. I got contacted by my employers at the time who said they were um, taking me out of the Middle East and they were essentially making me redundant from my position and um, came out of nowhere and they didn't need to give a reason because apparently they weren't contractually obliged. And I went into this period of this like almost gaslighting, um, total manipulation 
um, of months where I wasn't even able allowed to tell anybody what had happened mm. because they had these other redundancies they were going to deal with. To be honest, that period was worse. I would prefer the brain tumour mm. than what happened there. And it went from I went from waking up and feeling this sense of numinousness and like the world is out ahead of me and I can, I can, I can do whatever I want. Now I've been kind of almost saved um, to a sense of absolute red rage. Mm. And, um, and I think that the next year when I came back to Australia and I just had nothing but sort of anger and injustice, I went into a death spiral and I, I think... For a couple of months, I was just like, you know what? Just bring the tumour back and just fucking kill me. Wow. And I wanted, to, I wanted to die, but I didn't want to die. You know what I mean? I, feel, I felt like I had been sort of taken out in a way by well, what had happened. And there must be some sense as well of the total lack of control over what's going on physically in your brain mm. that I, I can imagine feeling similarly, you know, like I have no control over this to so just do it and get it done. Yeah. And I guess the other thing I'm hearing as well is when something happens to our body that's out of our control, it's difficult, if not impossible, to direct the rage that comes from that situation to anyone. But when humans act horribly, and maybe this is a nice segue <laughs> uh, to you, Stephanie Wood, because in your book, Fake, you do have to deal with someone who has acted quite hideously towards you. Um, the book documents someone that you call Joe in the book. Um, he's a former architect turned farmer. You have a romance together and then you discover not is all what it seems with this man. So we're talking about death. Be frank. How many times did you want to kill him? <laughs> So I've been sitting here thinking, shit, I've got to talk about death. What the hell am I going to talk about? And my father died and I was trying to remember, oh, my God, I had to go to the funeral home and choose no, a No, we just want to hear your murder fantasies. And there were squatters' coffins and there was bushrangers. This is Toowoomba, mm. Queensland, and I could have got a bushrangers' coffin for what my it, what dad. What is a bushrangers' coffin? Oh, it, you know, it had a bit of a Ned Kelly helmet on it and corrugated iron. And oh. corrug- so, I'm sorry, I'm just, you know, have to re- you know, remove <laughs> myself back into the zone of the rug talking about how many times I wanted to kill him. Um... Never. Mm. Okay, Which so really shuts down the conversation, doesn't it? No, no, no. That's um, interesting. Well, um, why? I mean, for a man, I mean, with so, when you, we have intimate relations with someone and we are betrayed, it feels so personal. Yeah. It feels so, so. That sense of intimacy is kind of the extent to which we feel that betrayal, right? Yeah. And so, why didn't that manifest as mur- murderous rage well, for you? I think and I, it was a form of grief, I mm. think, what I went through. And I think whenever we break up from an intimate relationship, I think most of us have, have, have been through nasty breakups of one form or another, you, it's a grief. And I've said to people, um, when I think about what actually happens when we break up with someone, we're not just breaking up with a person, uh, someone that we loved, someone that we shared intimacies with, someone that we whispered in their ear, we're breaking up with a vision of the future that we've had. And um, for me, that was particularly powerful when um, I broke up with Joe. Um, as we all know, journalism is a very perilous place to be. Mm. And um, I was working for Fairfax Media and there were all sorts of conversations about the death of Fairfax. I, th- I mean, was that the, na- the title of a book? Yeah, Fairfax was dying and has now been subsumed by nine. And, you know, th- it, there's a grief wrapped up for me in sort of this premature death of this career I just adore. And um, I think what 
I was in love with Joe, but I also saw a future with him that was glorious because he claimed to have be well off and he was going to buy a farm in the country or claimed to have bought the farm in the country. And he said, he said, I want you to bloom. I want you to write that book that you want to write. Well, you did. Yeah. <laughs> I sure did. Um, it was never the book that I wanted to write or I thought I'd write, but, yeah, it happened. And, you know, the, his little fantasies and his, his, his dangling promises were, which study do you want? The one next to mine in, or, the, or the one down the corridor? And we went to see this grand mansion that, and we mm. met the owners. I mean, there was this whole charade of him engaging in conversation with the owners in front of me and it was not the sort of place that you drop into for a Saturday morning inspection. It was a, listed on the Sotheby's website and I actually heard during the week from another person that he's been doing it to other properties as well and completely inserting himself into wow. the buying process. I feel like I need to write a letter to every real estate agent in the country and say, beware of this man. Um, but um, so I had formed this vision of myself on this farm growing vegetables and I'm looking forward to seeing you in the kitchen with grey hair one, one day. He said, mm. or something. He's, he's forming visions of me with grey hair to suggest and to hint at the longevity of what our relationship will be. Um, you know, I want us to cook together. I want us to, and it was this whole bucolic vision which I completely fell for. And I think a lot of it was because of the, the, the perilous state of our industry. Um, and so the grief when we parted, I think, was as much about losing this future that, um, that I'd craft, that he'd helped me craft in my head, as, as much about losing him. Mm. Um, and in the end, I did quit my job to write the book about him. Mm. And I'm still grieving the loss of the media, and as I knew it. And it's, it seems just such a tragedy to me that, you know, when I started in journalism more than two decades ago, it was glorious and this future stretched ahead and finally I was doing something I wanted to do when the, the media started to go like that. But that's, I don't think this has got much to do with death. <laughs> well, I mean, the death of the media industry is a whole other conversation yeah, that we could be... Well, the death of traditional legacy media anyway. Oh, legacy media, yeah. I, I think you could also... I mean, not to actually try and be too twee about it or anything, like genuinely what you've gone through has killed or would, for me, killed my ability to trust Oh, totally. Well, well, well this, this is a good question. I mean, to be able to be open to receiving love is a huge act of vulnerability and openness um, of sharing yourself. And when someone uses and exploits that, how do we prevent ourselves from that part of ourselves being sealed off and dying? Uh, or, because that's a protective mechanism. That's a completely understandable reaction. Do you have any? Do you have any thoughts? You're absolutely right. And it was actually not... It was almost more than the death of belief, my belief in trust. It was also the death of my belief in decency mm. and, and honesty and truth, which were just always the most fundamentally important things to me. Um, it was one of the things that my mother drilled into me about, you know, be honest first and foremost. It's the most important thing. Um, and my father, by he didn't, he didn't necessarily... He wasn't quite so... Um, loud as my mother in imparting messages he did it more by example but he was just the most beautiful decent man and I feel as if my the end of my relationship with Joe pretty much coincided Trump was elected about a year later 
and now we're living in this era of, you know. We're in a dark timeline. We're in a fucking dark timeline. Yeah, well, it's and like there's I'm another Gwyneth Paltrow out there who's much happier, who had her sliding doors <laughs> moment and Trump didn't win. Uh, yeah. And we're in the other place. We're I mean, in the sunken I, I place. I feel very often very gloomy about the state of the world and it certainly has coincided with my death in, in the tr- in the in my belief in trust. Yeah. Who can you trust? And I honestly don't know how I will trust again in, an, in an, mm. a relationship, which um, I'm hoping I might be able to, but... Yeah. I've got a few rapid-fire questions before we get to our next topic. So, anyone that you wish was dead? Oh. <laughs> Controversial. Um, this oh, won't be tweeted, while, will it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, tons of people. I mean, I know that's a terrible... I wouldn't pull the trigger. I don't believe in the death penalty. But... There are people who... It's but if so you contracted wishing, someone to kill them. It's not so much wishing them. that they were dead, but there are people who I think the, just the world would not skip a beat or lose a single <laughs> thing if they just disappeared from the face of the earth. Andrew Bolt is one of them. Trump is another. Um, Peter Dutton, probably. Some people would say that about me, too. But, uh, but are they... But is it those people or are they planter warts? You get rid of them, they're just going to be like replaced it anyway. I was going to say that's exactly what's in my head. So when I think about, you know, my partner has sometimes... He's a, he's a Scorpio. Um, and um, he, No, he's Scorpio Moon. Sorry, it's worse. Anyway, um, and um, he, he'll often sort of go... Like, he theorises, like, why isn't there some terminally ill patient that's not just going around assassinating all these people? What have they got to lose? Um, and he's got a list... That's he's a really much, good TV show pitch. Right? Yeah. He's a bit more vengeful than I am um, on that level, partly because of exactly what you just said. And I think everything that happens in life, we can just work back to the wire. Mm. Um, and I've always thought that, you know, that whole thing where you get the Barksdale family and they're the drug dealers and we think, oh, they're terrible, aren't they? But they sort of adhere to some kind of code, right? Mm. And then once they're taken out, then you get Marlowe. And he has no code. He is like the totally amoral, um, evil personified type of guy. And I feel like that's what happens. We get rid of one. Like, oh, let's get rid of Rupert Murdoch, right? Oh, great. Let's, let's get rid of him. Oh, who's waiting? Lachlan. Lachlan is way more cooked mm. than Rupert. Mm. You and need to read that New York Times article where it's just like, oh, my God, I've seen Lachlan Murdoch in a whole different light now. Well, I know. It's yeah. really, no, he is cooked. And I've been waiting for Rupert Murdoch to die for so long, just going, that'll fix everything. And reading that was like heartbreaking. Well, it's kind of like if Trump died, Mike Pence would be and president exactly. of the United States and what's worse. Actually, America anyone... is fortunate that Trump is a malignant narcissist and not a psychopath because mm. he's actually not very effective because he is so insecure. And they could have elected someone who was far more effective. Well, they did. They elected Dick Cheney, um, who was sort of the worst version of Trump. Yeah. But they got off light. And if someone were to assassinate Trump, you'd have a whole army of vigilantes coming out of West Virginia. So That's right. Okay, we're can gonna, I just say, I, yes. I, I didn't get my... Yeah, uh, yeah kill, kill you want to kill someone. <laughs> You're allowed to. Jacob Rees-Mogg. Oh, yeah. Niche, but yeah. yeah very niche. But oh, to me, yeah. he stands for every last sort of scrap of... British upper class entitlement. Can you just uh, to who, hell with the rest? Who is this person? He's that. He's, he's the that guy. Horrendous Tory. Horrendous Tory right. in the UK, who's pretty much been an architect behind the scenes of Brexit, you, and uh, just born born to rule, sort of plum in his mouth, kind of top hat wearing, morning suit wearing, kind of 
Ascot going. Look, if any of these people die or get assassinated within the next week, it is a pure coincidence that we've just been talking here. Very quick question about death. Last meal. Oh, uh, heroin. <laughs> yeah. yeah, true that. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, we get last meals too. You do? What, what's your last meal? Sea urchin. Oh. Uh, yeah, okay. Wow, that's I don't I'm that's so classy. Well, that's niche too. That's classy. I'm afraid I just I can't I can't, I'm I'm speechless. Um, I'm just gonna <laughs> eat air. I don't know. That's they've taken both words out of my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> Jess, why don't you roll All next? Right. So we've rolled one for death. Let's see what next topic we get. Okay, it's three, it's sex. Let's talk about sex. Oh, but you know what? This I mean, let's talk about uh, sex from a different angle in terms of your work, actually, Jess, because uh, your your book is looking at um, domestic forms of abuse. Um, and one of the interesting kind of takeaways at one point in your book, you talk about that average age that boys in Australia are currently watching porn is 13. Um, does that necessarily mean they'll grow up to be sexually violent? What's the link there? Mm. Um, well, no, of course. Um, but I guess what's... What's really interesting, this is something that, um, so when we're talking about watching porn, so the people who will sort of defend porn and who are perhaps, you know, what they call like sex positive feminists, for example, and, mm-hmm. they're, and, ver- and very rightly are defending the rights of sex workers, etc., um, they will emphasise the types of porn that are, you know, more, more consensual, the sorts of stuff maybe just like the more amateur type of porn that... that that has become more popular. The sort of porn that I'm talking about in the book is what's called Gonzo. And if you ever want to really like find out what that's about, um, there's a woman, Gail Dines, who wrote the book Pornland, very small book published by Spinifex Press. And oh my goodness, um, she just goes into very um, vibrant detail about what Gonzo porn is. Essentially, it's the worst and most degrading forms of porn, you know. And and what what unfortunately boys and girls, but boys are, are watching it more uniformly, is that they don't have a filter on, like, oh, I'm going to go for that really nice consensual YouTube porn because I prefer that. Like, it's they're just getting whatever comes up on their screen. And mm. the gonzo porn stuff is, by and large, more popular. They push it more aggressively. The problem is when you watch a lot of this sort of more intense porn, what we do once we get sort of like acclimatised to something is we want something harder and harder and, and different. And so it's like... That's what it trains into people who watch it from a young age. Um, now, the element of gonzo porn that I think is the most damaging is not necessarily even the abuse that gets um, portrayed, gagging, slapping, like vomiting. I mean, like I can't even extend to you that how bad it gets. It's the fact that the women are portrayed to not only accept that degrading treatment, but to want it hmm. and to feel grateful for it. And there's, there's two studies, and I talk about this a bit when I talk about porn, there's two studies that found totally conflicting results as to the rate of aggression in porn. One found in the top sort of 50 like videos or, you know, online um, videos, uh, top most, 50 most watched, that 78% or so, 78, 80%, included scenes of aggression. And another Australian study found that only 1.8% of those scenes uh, featured aggression. Oh, what, what, what accounts for that huge discrepancy? Well, the 1.8%, the way that they codified aggression was the woman resisting. 
Oh. And the whole point is she doesn't resist. She wants it. She wants more of it. She's so thankful for them gagging her to the point of vomiting. So what, what we're teaching or showing boys is that not only uh, is all of this sex possible, desirable, all the rest of it, and hardening them towards what they, what they actually want, but they're, they're learning that women will, even if they say no to begin with, will actually secretly want it. They'll be gratified by their abuse, it's re-invoking the whole thing around women's masochism. Mm. That even if they say they don't want it, secretly they like it. And Clem, this really bridges into a lot of the work that you've also done in Boys Will Be Boys, where you look at the different things that boys nowadays are exposed to. What were the kind of most surprising things that came up in your research that you weren't expecting when you first embarked on writing the book? Um, well, I actually, the statistic that I heard was that the the average age for boys to watch hardcore pornography. This may not be Australia-based. This may be sort of more world globally. But the average age for them to watch hardcore porn for the first time is 11. Um, this is incredible, isn't it? Because um, I am in my mid-30s, and so in my, gener- in my generation... But we've gone, from, we've gone from my generation that did have access to the internet, but a very slow-moving one. So a JPEG would just be loading... <laughs> At that Buffering. speed, Buffering. to um, Quite erotic in yes, a way. Yes, I know. It's, it's kind coming, of it's the I digital. Can see a boob. It's the digital yeah. version of inching. Um, <laughs> and now we've got like this kind of incredibly fast uh, porn that can be accessed on your mobile device, yeah. which is a huge shift. And I think the other thing as well is that it's it's not even. I mean, I'm I'm as concerned as you are about the the ways in which incredibly degrading treatment of women is being normalised and sexualised in the minds not just of young boys but also of young, in young girls but also the way that that porn is used still as, you know, it's not, it's not boys individually, privately, quietly at home looking up things and not telling their mates about it because they feel some sense of, well this is something that I, I have to just do by myself, like they're sharing it with each other and it becomes a form of bonding, which, you know, one of the things that I look at in Boys Will Be Boys is how sexual violence and sexual aggression, many more things than just that, but how those two things as well, are used by groups of men to codify their bonds with each other and to strengthen their bonds with each other and also to to kind of coerce each other too. So when I hear that the average age of boys to look at porn for the first time is 11... I also know that it's not an 11-year-old sitting down and going, all right, choking, gagging. Mm. You know, they may be curious and look up porn and find that, or they may have been shown it by their friends and not wanted to see it, Mm. but also not known how they can say, (coughs) excuse me, not known how they can say, uh, this makes me feel really uncomfortable, it makes me feel a bit scared. I'm not ready for this. And so it becomes this sort of, you know, you were talking yesterday about the normal traumatisation of boys happening and that sort of instilling feelings of shame happening around the age of five or six. This is a continuation of that, where boys are using their power over each other and using the power of the peer group to push each other into behaviour that they don't, that not all of them want to participate in. And and an example I heard of that recently was... um, a young man wrote to me, and this isn't a terrible assault story, so uh, don't you don't have to be warned in any way, but <laughs> he wrote to me about you know having gone to a private boys' school and remembering, and he's only 21 now, and so this would have happened six or seven years ago, remembering that 
some of the boys um, had taken... I mean, it's, it's, still kind, it's still an assault story, but they'd taken upskirt photos of one mm. of their teachers, without, obviously, without her realising, and they were sharing it around and trying to show it to him, and he was like, I don't want to look at that. Mm. And they basically, like, forced him to look at this, and they used physical force, but they also used pressure... But they made him complicit in this mm. attack on her. And I think that that's something as well that is, you know, not enough people want to talk about how young boys who become men who may continue doing this are being made complicit in attacks on women or young girls because they don't know how to say no or because other boys won't let them say no. Mm. Can I also say, just just as a point on Clems, is that um, it's that... They're, it's not like boys are necessarily just accidentally stumbling upon porn, although sometimes that feels like that can happen. The porn industry is actually targeting kids, um, much the same way that the cigarette companies used to, like, you know, they'd have those... Um, they, I don't know if anyone remembers the lollies called fags. Mm. I do. I used to get them all the time from this creepy Frenchman who ran the store down near my house. Anyway, um, and, um, and he, like, porn companies will actually have got data on the accidental keystrokes that children make when they're searching for the most common terms and they will have porn results come up in Google. So it's like often what's happening is this thing is appearing, it is obviously enticing because it's porn, and then they go down a rabbit hole. Mm. Steph, what you're writing about in your book is slightly different, but at the same time, I do wonder, since you've written the book and when you were doing your research, one of the fascinating things that I found was that you found other women who had uh, relations with Joe at the same time as you, and since publishing the book, a lot of people have reached out saying, this is actually my experience, not necessarily with the same person, but this has happened to me, this has happened to me. How much of that phenomenon is a gendered thing? Is it usually men deceiving women? Does it happen in the opposite way? Is there a gender dimension here? But I've certainly had most response from women. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had hundreds and hundreds of messages, and I'd say probably 98% of them are from women, but certainly there is a couple of percent. Odd, the odd bloke will write to tell me of their devastating stories. Um, and I, 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 want, I want to make it clear that what I believe was very personality-disordered behaviour um, that Joe exhibited is women can behave, can exhibit this behaviour and cause devastation to the men in their life as well. Um, and one of the women that I interviewed for the book runs a um, kind of a, a life coaching slash counselling service in the US um, where she people contact her if they've had these hideous experiences. She uses uh, Instagram very effectively to, to trap, not trap, that's not the right way to describe it, but people find her, her Instagram site, which is something, it's called something like Narcissist Sociopath Awareness. Um, and when we spoke, she said that um, she hears huge numbers of people from Australia contact her, and half of them are men. So that's anomalous with what my experience has been. Yeah. But um, personality disorders don't have a gender divide, as far as I know. When I came to Wollongong to interview the professor at the um, Personality Disorders Institute at the university here, um, he says it's pretty much a 50-50 split. Mm. But my correspondence are largely women. And that could be because women tell their stories more as well. Um, men don't. 
when we enter the world of sex and relationships, uh, there are always going to be experiences for which we're not prepared. So it's not like sex education ends the, the time that we're, we become an adult and ding, 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 we're constantly learning. Um, what are the lessons that you wish that you had um, that before embarking on a relationship with someone like Joe, what do you wish the future Stephanie Wood had gone back in time and told younger Stephanie Wood? Are there actually warning signs for all of us to look yeah, out they, for? Listen, they really, really are. And I, I suspect they're often very common to, to the warning signs for abuse. Um, it's, uh, there's a measure of control there, although that wasn't so much my situation with this bloke Joe. Um, I, he was kind and gentle and um, treated me on the face of it really, really well. But it, it ran to his agenda. The relationship ran to his agenda. It was all about him and his needs. And um, in hindsight, I can look back and see that I was being treated very poorly. Um, the, the, uh, during the relationship, I was just filled with anxiety. I knew something wasn't right, but I couldn't put my finger on what it was. I knew there were red flags, but I chose to ignore them. I, I mean, I have all the... The, this, I know how to do title deed searches and bankruptcy searches and all of those sorts of things. I sit, I sit, I used to sit near Kate McClymer at the Herald, um, and another investigative journalist at the Herald said, um, "Let's do some searches on him." And I said, "No, no, no, no. This is a love affair. This is not a. This is not an investigative journalism journalism piece. I'm, no, no, no. That would be a betrayal." And I did, I did feel deep down it would be a betrayal of him, but equally I didn't want to see. I didn't want to see the truth. Um, I'd been single for quite a few years and I was just revelling in the intimacy and the, and the pleasure that I was getting out of being able to say we instead of I for a change. Um, in terms of the lessons, uh, someone that I quote in my book, I think her name is Claudia Muscovy. She's an American psychologist. She has a sort of a thing, a rule of threes. Um, <clears throat> one cancellation, one act of bad behaviour... Um, one f fuck up in the relationship, okay, that's, that's okay, just store that away. Two, start to, two fuck ups, two cancellations, two acts of a poor, poor behaviour, this is really getting bad. Three, get out of there. Um, and if I had known that, I would have been out of there probably within about um, three months of the relationship starting instead of 14 months later. Um, but I think, the th I think most importantly, what I ta I've taken away from it and what I'd love every young woman entering their dating lives to, to know is they have to, to value ourselves. Mm. They deserve the very, very best of treatment and, and should never settle for less. Yeah. Thank you so much, Steph, for those takeaways. We've got one final roll of the dice. We've rolled a one and a three. What are we going to come up with? <sighs> then will you roll again? You'll roll again until we get another number. Four. Okay, four is interesting. This is quite philosophical now. It's religion. So um, I'm just going to open it up to all of you at the same time. Everyone Did you got grow really up? Really uncomfortable. Look, everyone went. Oh, oh, oh. we don't talk about that in war and gone. Sex and death. You were just like, yeah, oh, bring yeah. it. Yeah. Bring it on. By the power of Christ. No. I had a long conversation with Jess's uh, partner David this morning about not not religion per se because I'm not a religious person. In that I grew up, you know, with religious knowledge mm -hmm. in a family that, you know, I went to an Anglican school and I knew Bible stories, but it wasn't like God is watching you and, you know, you, that we didn't really believe in heaven and hell or anything like that. But I would say that now I, one of my favourite conversations to have is mm. like, 
what could happen after we die? What do you what do you think happens? Well, I don't I I know that I don't know is a very boring answer. I don't know if the, if nothing happens, fine, I won't know about it. But if something happens, then as my mother always loved to quote Peter Pan, you know, to die will be an awfully mm. big adventure. I hope there's a. I said to David this morning that I hope that when we die, we realise that that human life on Earth has been one tiny, tiny, tiny little facet of our existence. I'm I'm very compelled by or drawn to the sort of idea of Gnosticism. You know that we're here for the pursuit of knowledge. We're here to learn something, and that perhaps when we die. We return to where it is that we've come from and we can see all of human history all the way back to the beginning and all the way towards its end. Mm. I would love to know what the earth looks like when we're finally the last one of us dies. I am mindful that we're almost running out of time, but I want to get everyone else's answer as well. I mean, what, do you, what, do you, what would you like to happen after you die and what do you think happens after you die? They're two separate mm. things really, aren't they? So it's weird because I think we have a lot of contradictory notions about what we think life is, what we're on planet to do, whether there's life after death, whether whether we're energetic sparks just travelling along the electricity lines after we die, you know. Um, and part of me, I really, I identify with the notion of karmic lessons, much like sort of in the same vein as Gnosticism um, uh, that, you know, comes up in Buddhism and whatever that we're, that, you know, not that we have instant karma, but that we have things that we're on earth to to do, like messes to clean up from last time, things that we're on the planet right now to investigate um, and to become better at or to let go of. But then I can't imagine how reincarnation would work and I don't uh, I don't subscribe to the idea that I'm like going to reincarnate like a re- as a tortoise. Isn't it just like a recycling bin? You know, it's a That's, karmic recycling bin. Yes. And that <laughs> Although is, recycling doesn't work very well in Australia, no, though. That is also true. Well, maybe that's the metaphor we're looking for. I don't know. Um, and I, <laughs> Only 10% of plastics. <laughs> yeah, that's all right. And I, so I don't know. I, um, when I was thinking about death and whether I was going to die, um, mm. I... You know, it's interesting... I didn't reach for religion. I didn't sort of reach for something that would be of comfort to me. Um, A number of... I'm not an atheist. I'm totally agnostic. Um, But a number of atheists will say, you know, on their deathbed, they didn't reach for Mm. religion as a crutch. Weirdly enough, my nonna did. um, Not. She started attending church. I don't know if she ever really bought it Um, but she later in her later life she really got much more into that partly because some of her daughters were quite Christian Mm. Um, but no there's no there's no movement I just um, I guess the karmic lesson stuff is about as far as I go and the rest of it is up to the universe can I just say something very very Mm -hmm, quickly mm -hmm. sorry Stephanie Um, my grandmother died recently she was extremely old so it's fine Um, I mean you know she had a wonderful life but she died and my aunt was there in the room when it happened. And I think anyone who's been present when someone dies will say that mm. you, you notice that rush of energy leaves the body. But my aunt, who's a very straightforward down-the-line woman, said that it was really interesting because in the few minutes before and as my grandmother died, she said she very strongly felt the presence of two of my grandmother's best friends oh, wow. who had also died. And she said, I just felt them there in, in the room with her. Stephanie, uh, same question. How would, you, what, how would you like to uh, continue after death and what do you actually think happened? Um, 
Well, I'll start with what I think happens. I think nothing happens. Mm-hmm. I think we go to nothingness, which is not very comforting at all. a stage full of godless heathens. <laughs> I'm sorry, everyone. Journalists, I'm <laughs> really <laughs> sorry. Listen, I would revenge. so love to think that wasn't the case. <laughs> what would you like I'd like to, to see Dad again. I'd like to see my grandma right. again. But um, I don't think there's anything. Mm. I really don't. But um, if there were to be something, and I did, couldn't see my dad and my grandmother again, um, I, I sort of liked the image and I, through my book I write a lot about the sea and the ocean and I return to the ocean to sort of, for healing I suppose, although that sounds a bit cliche, but for replenishment, and to, it's where I came, I thought a lot and, and tried to come to terms with what had happened. Um, and the colours blue and, and green are mm. just incredibly, they get me in the gut. And there's a, if you've not seen the film um, The Shape of Water... Mm. It's absolutely magnificent. What's the name of the director again? Um, Guillermo del Toro. That's thank you. Um, and the last scene. Mm. Um, well, which we won't give away. Which we won't yeah. give away. But, but it involves a, water. Suffice to say, it involves water. Is, it's in the title. That's fine. This is how my heaven would be. I'd be slipping away into these incredible blue-green depths with a sea, a green sea creature mm. who Who's might not hot. look great, but he was <laughs> gorgeous and kind, and he loved me. That is the note we're going to leave on, not on a Nietzschean staring into the abyss, but of a bestial relationship between man slash woman and amphibian. Thank you so much for joining us today. Could you please join me in thanking our wonderful guests, Clementine Ford, Jess Hill and Stephanie Wood, everyone. Benjamin Law. Thank you. If you'd like to hear more from Wollongong Writers Festival, because trust me, there's some really amazing sessions yet to drop, or you just want to hear more from regional writing festivals, then head on over to our website, www.rightsforwomen.com forward slash rights for festivals. That's where you'll find all the episodes of the Rights for Festivals podcast, or you can go and subscribe wherever you get your pods, Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, all those good places. Please do give us a rating and review because then we can spread the goodness and other people can find us too. Thank you so much for listening to the Rights for Festivals podcast and supporting regional writing festivals. This podcast episode was produced and edited by Kel Butler from Listen Up Podcasting. Podcasts for a positive world.